This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 2, Chapter 1. Through the fall and revolt of Adam, the whole human race made accursed and degenerate of original sin. Sections 8. Definition of original sin. Two parts in the definition. Exposition of the latter part. Original sin exposes us to the wrath of God. It also produces in us the works of the flesh. Other definitions considered. 9. Exposition of the former part of the definition. That hereditary depravity extends to all the faculties of the soul. 10. From the exposition of both parts of the definition, it follows that God is not the author of sin, the whole human race being corrupted by an inherent viciousness. And 11. This, however, is not from nature, but is an adventitious quality. Accordingly, the dream of the Manichees as to two principles vanishes. Section 8. But lest the thing itself of which we speak be unknown or doubtful, it will be proper to define original sin. I have no intention, however, to discuss all the definitions which different writers have adopted, but only to adduce the one which seems to me most accordant with truth. Original sin, then, may be defined a hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature, extending to all the parts of the soul, which first makes us obnoxious to the wrath of God, and then produces in us works which in Scripture are termed works of the flesh. This corruption is repeatedly designated by Paul by the term sin, Galatians 5.19, while the works which proceed from it, such as adultery, fornication, theft, hatred, murder, revelings, he terms in the same way, the fruits of sin. Though in various passages of Scripture, and even by Paul himself, they are also termed sins. The two things, therefore, are to be distinctly observed, that being thus perverted and corrupted in all the parts of our nature, we are merely on account of such corruption deservedly condemned by God, to whom nothing is acceptable but righteousness, innocence, and purity. This is not liability for another's fault. For when it is said that the sin of Adam has made us obnoxious to the justice of God, The meaning is not that we, who are in ourselves innocent and blameless, are bearing his guilt, but that since by his transgression we are all placed under the curse. He is said to have brought us under obligation. Through him, however, not only has punishment been derived, but pollution instilled, for which punishment is justly due. Hence Augustine, though he often terms it another's sin, that he may more clearly show how it comes to us by descent, at the same time asserts that it is each individual's own sin. And the Apostle most distinctly testifies that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, Romans 5.12, that is, are involved in original sin, and polluted by its stain. Hence even infants, bringing their condemnation with them from their mother's womb, suffer not for another's, but for their own defect. For although they have not yet produced the fruits of their own unrighteousness, they have the seed implanted in them. Nay, their whole nature is, as it were, a seedbed of sin, 
and therefore cannot but be odious and abominable to God. Hence it follows that it is properly deemed sinful in the sight of God, for there could be no condemnation without guilt. Next comes the other point, that this perversity in us never ceases, but constantly produces new fruits. In other words, those works of the flesh which we formerly described, just as a lighted furnace sends forth sparks and flames, where a fountain without ceasing pours out water. Hence those who have defined original sin as the want of the original righteousness, which we ought to have had, though they substantially comprehend the whole case, do not significantly enough express its power and energy. For our nature is not only utterly devoid of goodness, but so prolific in all kinds of evil, that it can never be idle. Those who term it concupiscence use a word not very inappropriate, provided it were added, this however many will by no means concede, that everything which is in man, from the intellect to the will, from the soul even to the flesh, is defiled and pervaded with this concupiscence, or to express it more briefly, that the whole man is in himself nothing else than concupiscence. Section 9. I have said, therefore, that all the parts of the soul were possessed by sin, ever since Adam revolted from the fountain of righteousness. For not only did the inferior appetites entice him, but abominable impiety seized upon the very citadel of the mind, and pride penetrated to his inmost heart, so that it is foolish and unmeaning to confine the corruption thence proceeding to what are called sensual motions or to call it an excitement which allures, excites, and drags the single part which they call sensuality into sin. Here Peter Lombard has displayed gross ignorance. When investigating the seat of corruption, he says it is in the flesh, as Paul declares, not properly, indeed, but as being more apparent in the flesh. As if Paul had meant that only a part of the soul, and not the whole nature, was opposed to supernatural grace. Paul himself leaves no room for doubt when he says that corruption does not dwell in one part only, but that no part is free from its deadly taint. For speaking of corrupt nature, he not only condemns the inordinate nature of the appetites, but in particular declares that the understanding is subjected to blindness and the heart to depravity. Ephesians 4:17 and 18. The third chapter of the epistle to the Romans is nothing but a description of original sin. The same thing appears more clearly from the mode of renovation. For the spirit, which is contrasted with the old man, and the flesh, denotes not only the grace by which the sensual or inferior part of the soul is corrected, but includes a complete reformation of all its parts, Ephesians 4.23. And accordingly, Paul enjoins not only that gross appetites be suppressed, but that we be renewed in the spirit of our mind, Ephesians 4.23 as he elsewhere tells us, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Romans 12.2 Hence it follows that that part in which the dignity and excellence of the soul are most conspicuous has not only been wounded, but so corrupted that mere cure is not sufficient. There must be a new nature. How far sin has seized both on the mind and heart, we shall shortly see. Here I only wished briefly to observe that the whole man, from the crown of the head to the sole of the foot, is so deluged, as it were, that no part remains exempt from sin, and therefore everything which proceeds from him is imputed as sin. Thus Paul says that all carnal thoughts and affections are enmity against God, and consequently 
death. Romans 8, 7. Section 10. Let us have done, then, with those who dare to inscribe the name of God on their vices, because they say that men are born vicious. The divine workmanship, which they ought to look for in the nature of Adam, when still entire and uncorrupted, they absurdly expect to find in their depravity. The blame of our ruin rests with our own carnality, not with God, its only cause being our degeneracy from our original condition. And let no one here glamour that God might have provided better for our safety by preventing Adam's fall. This objection, which, from the daring presumption implied in it, is odious to every pious mind, relates to the mystery of predestination, which will afterwards be considered in its own place. Meanwhile, let us remember that our ruin is attributable to our own depravity, that we may not insinuate a charge against God himself, the author of nature. It is true that nature has received a mortal wound, but there is a great difference between a wound inflicted from without and one inherent in our first condition. It is plain that this wound was inflicted by sin, and therefore we have no ground of complaint except against ourselves. This is carefully taught in Scripture. For the preacher says, Lo, this only have I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Ecclesiastes 7.29 Since man, by the kindness of God, was made upright, but by his own infatuation fell away unto vanity, his destruction is obviously attributable only to himself. Section 11 We say then that man is corrupted by a natural viciousness, but not by one which proceeded from nature. In saying that it proceeded not from nature, we mean that it was rather an adventitious event which befell man, that a substantial property assigned to him from the beginning. We, however, call it natural to prevent any one from supposing that each individual contracts it by depraved habit, whereas all receive it by a hereditary law. And we have authority for so calling it. For on the same grounds, the Apostle says that we are by nature the children of wrath, Ephesians 2.3. How could God, who takes pleasure in the meanest of his works, be offended with the noblest of them all? The offense is not with the work itself, but the corruption of the work. Wherefore, if it is not improper to say that in consequence of the corruption of human nature, man is naturally hateful to God, it is not improper to say that he is naturally vicious and depraved. Hence, in the view of our corrupt nature, Augustine hesitates not to call those sins natural which necessarily reign in the flesh wherever the grace of God is wanting. This disposes of the absurd notion of the Manichees, who, imagining that man was essentially wicked, went the length of assigning him a different creator, that they might thus avoid the appearance of attributing the cause and origin of evil to a righteous God. Section 12. 